Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close, I could taste sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick Bedev, your host of Value Taming. Today I'm going to talk to somebody that's worth $19 billion. He is known as one of the greatest hedge fund managers in the world, none other than Ray Dalio. Ray, thank you for making the time. Thank you for making the time. Yes, and uh, we kind of wanted to create a romantic setting. This is like a notebook-esque for you. Maybe you're going to open up and tell us some of your insight even deeper than principles. Well, I don't know about your comment about romantic, but in any case, (laughs) (laughs) it is a pretty setting. It is a great setting, yes. So, Ray, for some people who don't, obviously one of the things you and I talk about on the phone, I come from the Morgan Stanley background. That's kind of how I got into the financial industry. How did you get into the business yourself? In the 1960s, uh, I was caddying at a golf course, <clears throat> and then um, and the stock market was hot at the time. So I was 12 years old, and I was talking about stocks with the people that I was caddying with, and I took my caddying money, and I decided I would invest. I didn't know what I was doing. First stock I bought was a company which was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. That was my criteria. Because I figured I could buy more shares and that meant if it went up, I would make more money. Obviously stupid. Mm -hmm. But I got lucky. The first company I bought was a company that was about to go broke, but somebody acquired it and it tripled. And I thought this game is easy. So I got hooked. How instant was that? What was the timeline of you investing to a tripling? Uh, I don't remember exactly, but I would say it was probably uh, maybe a little less than a year, a year, That's something like that. That's pretty quick to triple. Yeah. I mean, that can really hook you. That can well, really pull ac- you in. Yeah, when an acquisition comes along. So, and then I got hooked on the game. I know your dad was a, a musician, jazz, and, and, and yeah. but how did you get into even being interested in that? Was it listening to what they were talking about, the guys that were golfing when you were caddying? Or? At the time, everybody played a little bit around, you know, in other words, they were mm-hmm. taking the stock mm-hmm. market was very hot so but uh, so I'd walk around and we'd be chatting you know I'd be asking them questions and they would think it was a little odd that I was asking them questions and they were nice to a young kid and so we would talk about it and I'd say what stock and what you know and so that's how it happened and at that time uh, if I'm 12 years old and I'm your friend how was Ray Dalio what was your personality like were you shy were you curious? Were you confident? What, what was your personality Well, the like? first word that you mentioned that comes is curious. Okay. I'm very, very curious, right? I'm not shy, um, but I'm polite. You know, I don't want to, if they're playing golf, I want to do what they want me to do. But if you get a nice person and I'm curious and we get into an interesting conversation that they're interested in, it's great. Now, you caddy for some interesting people. I know one of them being uh, President Nixon. Was he a president when you were caddying or not yet? No, not he yet. He wasn't yet? No. He had lost the election, you know, his, his first. And then he, it was post that. Got it. Then the Duke of Windsor and some other people. Yeah, so that's a nice uh, and there was Well, and then there's a, there was a Wall Street crowd, you know. And that led to my uh, being able to clerk on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Because one of those guys, we were talking about the markets wow. and so on. Yeah. And he had a specialist firm, in other words, a floor brokerage firm on the floor. And so um, he said, hey, why don't you, in your summer job, come down and clerk? So between college and my uh, summer job, my, my going to business school, 
uh, I got to clerk on the floor of the stock exchange. But along the way, you know, those those guys made a big difference in my life. I bet. I, do you remember any dialogue with Richard Nixon or no? Was there any specific that stuck till today or not? No, really? he was. There wasn't. He wasn't chatty. Okay, that's. It's funny. I asked Clint Hill. I don't know if you know Clint Hill. No. Clint Hill was the Secret Service agent when JFK got shot. He's the first guy that jumped on the top of the car. Ooh. And he was a Secret Service for uh, Richard Nixon. I says he wouldn't talk too much. He was always kind of to himself and quiet. It seems it's the same thing with you as well. So now you go to high school. Who were you in high school? Same curious. Were you playing sports? Were you a 4.0 GPA kid? Who were you in high school? No, I was the opposite of a 4.0 GPA kid. Like, <clears throat> I, I, I didn't like high school. I, I, I did like playing with my pals and, and, you know, having a good time. You know, there was so much of learn this, remember this. And I think, first of all, I think I have a very bad rope memory. What I mean rope memory is if something doesn't have a reason for being what it is yeah. uh, within its context, um, if, like let's say phone numbers or names and so on, I, uh, it's challenging for me to remember it. But also, um, I didn't understand the purpose of it. I didn't get it hooked in. It wasn't curious, curiosity-based. It wasn't interesting. And so um, I was um, a lousy high school student. I barely got in on probation to uh, CW Post College, which is no Ivy League college. But I'm very, very curious at the time for lots of different things. What topics? People would say everything from politics to, you know, politics. markets and how things work, you know, not mechanical things, but how the system. I was up involved with po uh, politics quite a Why bit. Why politics? Well, I was young enough at the time that I remember Eisenhower going to Nixon, the debate mm. in Kennedy. And I was inspired by John Kennedy and that era. Um, and so all along then, um, it was interesting. And so when Bobby Kennedy was running for the Senate, it was in New York, mm -hmm. um, I got very actively involved. I was just, I was in high school. And so that part of it was interesting to me. So anyway, politics, markets, did you play any games? Were you a card guy, backgammon, chess? Like, did you have oh, any I of played, those games? I, I, or? Played, I played backgammon. You played backgammon? Yeah, played backgammon. I, play, I like chess. I played some chess. But no, it was mostly my game was the markets because the two Even things like went time. together. Wow. Okay, the two things went together. What was going on in the world, politics yeah. and so on, and what was going on in the markets. And to me, it was an ability to bet on what was going on in the markets. Right? In other words, or go bet on what's going on in the world. Because what was going on in the world would affect what was going That's on in right. markets. So to me, that enthralled me. Because it wasn't just theoretical. Like if you read a you know, newspaper and everybody talks politics and mm -hmm, they say, mm -hmm. you, uh, what's going to happen? Oh yeah, bet on it. Make your, your bet. And the markets gives you an objective scoring of how well you are at betting on these macro, global macro, economic, political things. Is that, is that a pretty common threat amongst everybody in your world? When I say your world, I'm talking you, Buffett, I'm talking people that are investors that pay very close attention to politics because so does Buffett. He, you know, he's a guy that was coming up paying attention to that. Is that very common or not really? Uh, not really. Oh, okay. Not really. In terms of, let's say, global macro investor, um, most people find a particular niche. Let's say, I would say even in uh, Warren Buffett's case, 
he will focus a lot, particularly on the cash flows. You're exchanging one cash flow for another cash mm -hmm. flow. That has to do with value investing and such things. More math. You, you pay a t well, investing is an exchange of a lump sum payment for a future cash flow, right? So it's, it may be the cash you have or even the cash you can borrow, but you can take a certain amount of cash and you buy something. And what you're getting is a cash flow, like your investment and that, and they all compare. So when you can take a, a certain amount of cash that let's say you could borrow it at 3% and I can invest it at 6%, then I'm gonna make a 3% spread. And it's the constant calculation of what that uh, would be, let's say, Warren Buffett's type of mm -hmm. um, type of approach, and that would be most important. That's more value investing. Then you do with how the world is changing, and what the world is going to be like, and that's a little bit different. Or you go to um, niches. You know, a niche might be you follow a particular industry, and what will the new AI technologies be, for example, and how do I bet on that? Or it may end up being that you look at certain distressed debt. But quite often, it's a much more narrow, specialist type of thing. So it's a little bit like doctors. You know, a doctor might be a specialist in this. There are a lot of specialists. And then the idea of global macro uh, brings me in a to a different world than most of the men are Is in. that you as well? Because you're more diversified. When I look at the way you set up your portfolio, it's not as niches that uh, some no, of these... No, I'm big on diversification. You're very big on it's diversification. Like knowing, how, knowing how to uh, diversify well, is more important than almost anything. People don't understand this. Is that an evergreen principle, you think? Yes, that's an evergreen principle. Interesting. And the reason I'm saying that, the way it is, it's almost like a casino making its money. Okay. Okay. The way that you do it is you get an edge. So now when you have to make a bet, I've got a bet against the whole world. The world has view on something is reflected in the price. So when I think something is attractive or unattractive, that means I have to bet against the whole world and whether that's right or not. That's difficult. I get it right, you know, more often than I get it wrong, but I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. And so when you can take a lot of different bets, what you can do is, like the casino, you'll get your average that your bet would be, but you'll reduce your risk of one of those tables not being the table that's paying off. And so that margin that, uh, so I can reduce my risk without reducing my return by knowing how to diversify. And I'd say that's particularly true, important for, for the people who are listening, your investors. Because what they've got to- Reduce risk without reducing return. That's right. That's the specialty. That's right. Elaborate a little bit more if you don't mind on that. So reducing risk without re reducing the uh, return, because a lot of times if I'm reducing the risk, it means my return's also going lower. But you're saying no, we're no. reducing it without even reducing the return. Right. I mean, that's a high-paying skill set to it, have. It's, it's the most important thing that you could start off doing. If you have a number of equally good likely bets, but they're uncorrelated, like the casino, you know, one table is going to make me a margin like this, mm -hmm. but take another table and it makes me a margin like this, but I might have volatility about those. Let me take all those investments that I think will make 10%, so that's my return, but they're uncorrelated with each other. That means I'll still get the 10. I don't lower my 10, but my diversification means I lower my risk. 
So I improve my return to risk ratio. Ah. Is that an and, art that you can teach? Oh yeah, yeah. I wrote about it in, there's a, what I call a section in this book, the holy grail of investing. It's like three pages long. And it explains basically this important thing. Because when that epiphany happened to me and how I would do it, it changed everything by being able to do that. Because how old were you it, when you it, figured I that can out? improve through diversification. I can improve my return to risk ratio by a factor of five. So by diversifying, okay, the return relative to the risk, I can keep my returns the same and reduce my risk to one-fifth if I know how to di diversify well. And that's why I'm explaining it. It's not all that complicated. It's simply explained in the book. But in any case, that is the holy grail of investing, okay? That's a big thing. If you start to know that that's what you're going for, it changes everything. And it's so important for the average person who's listening. And let me explain why that is. Because the average person who's listening, too many people, think that they can go into this very difficult zero-sum game of betting against the consensus and be right. You know what I mean? In other words, investor says, I'm going to go in the markets, I'm going to make money. Betting against the consensus and be right. Right. Because okay. the consensus is built into the price. Okay. Okay? That's what's the... So, it's, think of it as like going to a horse race and there's handicaps. Okay? You're not going to pick the best horse and you're not going to pick the best company. A terrible company can be a better investment than a, uh, a terrific company. A terrible company could be a better investment, just like the terrible horse can be a In better investment. Because the odds that are changing, like you go into that and that becomes the long shot. But because the long shot is going to pay off 25 to 1, right, if he comes in, that um, you could just as likely bet on the, the long shot as the leader, and it's going to be equally likely that you're going to make money, right? Otherwise, you'd, otherwise, the market would be doing the opposite. Well, the market is like that, right? In other words, if everybody believes that something's going to be terrific, okay, then everybody's betting on it, and its price is high. So it's not what's best, necessarily. Mm. It's what's best relative to what's in the price, what's discounted. So let me ask you, say I have your formula. Let's just say I have your formula. You got, you got to run, what, 1,500 employees with Bridgewater? Is the number right, about 1,500 yeah, employees? Right. So if I have the formula that you have, what other, what edge do you have that somebody else has to have as a character, as an individual quality, discipline, patience? What else do you need for somebody to say, guess what, I'm gonna go build the next bridge wall? Uh, okay, before I go to that, I wanna pit, complete my thought on this notion sure. of you as an average investor and why diversification is so important. In order for you um, to win in the game like you're going to go in and pick what's a good investment, mm -hmm. you are playing against others. You have to realize that because that's, it's all in the odds. It's like when you go to the track, you're going to have to play against the handicappers, okay? So it is very difficult for you to beat me or to beat others who are putting 1,500 people and hundreds of millions of dollars into how to win in that game right and there's a lot of people and I find it challenging I find it difficult so it's difficult to win in that game it's it, it's difficult to win in that game individually by placing the bets 
it's difficult to win in that game. It's more difficult to succeed in the markets than it is to succeed in the Olympics. Okay, people, th but people don't realize that. They think I'm going to go have an opinion. Sure. Okay, but there are more people trying to do it in the markets than are trying to do it in the Olympics. And so nobody would say I'm going to run and compete in the Olympics when you realize how difficult that is. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you can diversify well. Anybody could diversify well. So if we look at the, what the world will be like in five years mm -hmm. or three years mm -hmm. or one year, okay, like we're coming in the presidential election. We have all these things going on. Okay, you want to bet on it? Okay, wise guy, give it a shot. That's what is you're that, doing. Is that easy? That's what you're doing. Okay, well, the only way I can do it is I need to diversify my bets well. I wouldn't want to concentrate on any one of those. So you're not. And I try so to, I, I'll, I'll take, like the casino, I will take, I'll take that bet, and I'll take this bet, and I'll take a bunch of those bets. But for you as the average investor, you're probably not going to even be able to pick which horse has got the the edge relative to the handicappers, okay? And so diversification, that is the thing that I would say, particularly for anybody, it is the most important thing It's if you know how to do that well. So that's why I'm saying, you know, that page, those couple of pages here was something I wanted to yeah. pass along to you, people. You'll see a lot of people will say that's a boring formula or it's an outdated, you know, you'll be in the industry and say, oh, this whole diversification is a boring formula, it's oh, outdated, no, no, et cetera, no, 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 et cetera. No, no. I'm just trying to say, I went from nothing. You asked me, okay? I, I, my dad's a jazz musician, middle class or low middle class family. Uh, um, I had nothing other than parents who cared for me and I, and I could go to a good public school. And that was the only thing I had. And if I took that and I say, okay, here I am <clears throat> with the things that happened over the markets and making money and mm -hmm. building a business and so on, <clears throat> there, is, there are a limited number of principles that I want to pass along to people because I think if they can get those principles that that would be extremely valuable. And this is not boring. So when I come back and you oh, say, okay, you. that I'm, arc in life sure. was not boring. That right. was a very successful and exciting arc in life. And this is one of those principles. So if you take diversifying well, how to diversify well, Please go understand that principle. It's only a couple of pages. Please go understand that principle because when you have savings and you think how much money do I need for my kid's education or my retirement or whatever it is and so on. And if you don't know how to do this well, you're risking a lot. And if you do it well and so on, it produces an enormous amount of opportunity. So you have 1,500 employees here. How many of them do research for you specifically tied to politics, election, what's going to happen? How, how much are you spending time studying that part of it since you're saying two things intrigued you in high school, politics and economy and how it's tied to each other? Are you guys focused heavily on studying what's happening in politics as well, regulation, well, laws, all well, that, or well, not really? Well, we, well we, we need to. We need to more so today than we have ever had to. Why do you say that? Well, because um, we're in a period of time which is very much like the late 1930s. There are three main things that exist today and are the biggest forces in what is happening that did not exist before in our lifetimes, but existed in the 1930s, okay? And if you look at history, they repeat themselves. And the first is, that there's a very large gap between the rich and the poor, and as a result, a big gap in politics between the uh, left and the right, okay? 
it's become more extreme. And in this coming election, it will be more extreme. And around the world, it's more extreme. That's why we see the rise in populism, okay? That has very big implications on how the economy will work and how taxes will happen. Let me give an example. The, the corporate tax cut, which happened, uh, was a big boost for stocks because you own a stock and they pay less taxes, the stock is worth more, the company's worth more. Um, if there's a, uh, let's say, a Democrat elected, there's a high probability, almost certainty, that that would be uh, sure. rolled back. Sure. So one of those or another matters, and it matters in a lot of different ways, more than it ever mattered before. So item number one, the wealth gap and the political gap. The second factor, interest rates are close to zero and the printing of money um, to buy assets is not as effective. In the old days, in the normal days, uh, if the economy didn't do so well, you'd hit it with a, a little joke of stimulation. You'd lower, lower the interest, interest rate, rate and, yeah. and put some cash out there. You give it a hype and mm -hmm. then it goes, okay? When you get to zero or close to zero, you can't lower those interest rates. So we're close to that level in the United States. We're at those levels, negative interest rates in Europe, negative interest rates in Japan. That baby ain't going to work anymore when you try to lower that in terms of that won't happen. Okay, that's limited. And then the, what they do is they go out and they print money and they buy financial assets. And that is not working as well because what happens is when you buy the financial assets, it goes into the hands of, the, of who own financial assets. Yeah. Investors and what they do is they put it into more investments. That notion of putting it into more investments makes those investments go up in price, which is great for the people who have the investments, but not so great for the people who don't have the investments. It widens the wealth gap, and it's a, its own challenge, and it's not going to be stimulative, and you'll see it. So, item number two that didn't exist in our lifetimes before, but did exist in the late 30s, was is that. Item number three that exists is that there's a rise of a, uh, a power to challenging an existing world power. China. China rising to challenge the United States. And if you look at through history, uh, when there's existing world powers and there's rising of a challenging power, um, there is a conflict. There are conflicts. Um, and they've led to wars. In the last 500 years, that's happened 16 times. And in 12 of those times, they ha there were wars. There are four types of wars that happen simultaneously. We always think shooting each other and sending people and bodies into wars and that kind of war. But, but they all have four types of wars. Um, they have a trade war. Mm -hmm. They often start with a trade war, 1930s, smooth Harley tariffs. Um, there is a technology war. There is a geopolitical war, like is happening with China. What will it mean for Asia, Asian countries? And there's a capital war, um, capital war in all of these cases. So for example, just recently, the Trump administration said that they're considering shutting off capital to uh, China, a certain flow of capital to China. Well, it's not happened before. You have to go back to World War II. Um, and in World War II, um, and in a number of wars that other countries have had, they have a capital war, which means that, uh, that they could say, the Trump administration could say to the Chinese, um, you know those trillion dollars of bonds that you own? 
uh, well, we're not going to pay you, or we're going to do this or that. These types of wars, and how, to, how does money flow between countries? Who needs who more, country? though, Ray? Who needs who more? I'm not, I'll digress into that, um, but I just wanted to make clear that at number three, so these are factors. Sure. One, wealth and political gap, extreme. Number two, um, monetary policy can't, so if we have a downturn and they're at each other's throats, serious. Number three, the conflict uh, with, the, with China. These things have played out. Now when you ask how do you play the game in China, U.S., that's a, that's a conversation, but I just wanted to c clarify that the nature of the no, dynamic. No, that's powerful. But. So now when you look at why is politics more important today than it was, because that will determine in the markets what will happen in, in the markets and the economy, right? And number one, that wealth gap, who, who you elect will have a big economic and market impact. Tremendous. Num number two, yeah. the absence of monetary policy will have a big market impact as to what will be done. And number three, this geopolitical war, which involves those four things, technology and so on, will have a big impact. So that's why it's more important than ever. So question for you with U.S.-China, who needs who more? Because China was communism, you write about it in your paper, why and how capitalism needs to be reformed, which we're going to put the link below. If you haven't read it, you got to read this paper. So who needs who more? They're communism. They look at what's going on in the world. They notice U.S. is doing good. This whole book about Karl Marx, Communist Manifesto, flopped. It impacted a lot of people were killed. It didn't work. My family, half of them were communists. Then they look around Russia, says, hey, Reagan comes. Maybe you got to consider capitalism. Russia kind of starts doing it now. China's looking at it. They keep communism at the power at the top where there's not really freedom of press. But economy, maybe let's test capitalism. Now they're coming up. Isn't the leader still U.S. where they rely on U.S. even though if they want to compete against them? Because I know this whole plan they have with Made in China 2025 with uh, IP and all these things they're taking with the whole plan. I'm sure you've read about it. But my question for you is simple. I, I Who needs who more? I spend a lot of time in China and I, I, and, and I know leaders and I, and I see both perspectives and I want to try to be as accurate as I possibly can in painting those perspectives, okay? There is, uh, there is a hierarchy, and in most large companies in the United States, you would not have a vote and an election as to who's operating it. And so it's a top-down kind of management in which the government is uh, uh, working in the coordination of its private sector and its public sector. Extremely in, involved. In, uh, right, uh, ex exactly. And they would say, it seems so crazy not to be. I mean, so uh, a leader of China described it as follows, okay? He said, and, and this will help you understand the Chinese un mentality. And because you have, you, you've been, uh, you know Iran and you know the United States, if one needs to suspend biases in order to try to hear the other's perspective. And so what a leader in China described to me, he said, the essence of the difference between the United States and China is what is uh, the unit of ma that matters. In the United States, it is the individual. It is individualism, and it is the individual. And everything is bottom up. You know, it's the entrepreneur, you elect your government from bottom up, and, and so on. So it's a bottom up type of process. Companies are put together by people who all want to make money together. They find it and they come together and they make it bottom up, but it's bottom up. If you want to build a highway, 
okay, individual property rights will matter a lot more in the United States. So an individual can almost stand in the way of that highway being. If you have a mission to get something done, um, individuals can stand in the way or facilitate it. So that's bottom up. And he said, in China, the unit is the, the family. And when, if you understand Confucianism, Confucianism is for China what Judeo-Christian roots is for the United States. And that starts with the family, and it says, if you know how to run your family well, and there are rules for running your family well, according to Confucius, and, and then you know how to interact with your family, interacting with the greater society, you have order. But it's very paternal. Paternal means, okay, your responsibility, it's top down. So when they, so there's very, they, when they're running the government, it would be very similar to maybe running a big company here, that they would say, okay, well, there's top down. Which produces better results. Uh, I'm not going to get, that, that we can ask, but, but I, ask, I get, but I understand okay. the philosophy okay. where you're going so with this. So it's top down. So, yeah. so the, it's a complicated question, right? The important thing, uh, so I'll, I'll give you what, what my thoughts are on that. In their experience, um, when I first started going there, which was in 1984, since 1984, they have increased their incomes by an average of 26 times. They've gone from 2% of GDP to 22% of GDP. They had a poverty rate, which was 88%. It's now gone to less than 1%. They have lengthened the life expectancy by 10 years. Uh, I'm not saying which has gone better or not. But I'm saying they believe, and when you look at it, that that process is a logical process and it works well. And so that is the one that they're operating by. I've, I grew up in America, which was a land of opportunity for me. And this goes back to what I'm saying in terms of it's got to be a land of opportunity. But I grew up in, in, in and all I had were uh, two parents who loved me and I went to a public school. And, and I believe in this opportunity and that, that element of those types of freedoms to create th that. Uh, that opportunity. Right now in the United States, we have a problem in the public education system in terms of the quality. Certain areas which um, are can't receive basic funding for basic things, the most basic things because money doesn't get to them. They would say, well, that would be intolerable. How do we get deal with it? We have our own problems. So that each has a uh, um, elements of pros and cons. They could say, listen, having my companies work with my government, if, if, let's say on research, if I was to take a, a AI research, or if we take Huawei or companies like that, and you, you would say, well, there, in earlier years, in earlier decades, there was funding for original research. If it's just the exact profit motive before you make it, it may not be that the best results are necessarily always dealt with particularly the profit moment. So they might say, listen, we'll put money into development. Mm. Now we would say in a, I think a, maybe too black and white way, that um, putting money into the development by the government making some of those moves would not be uh, our way of doing it from profit yes. down. And so if you look, but if you look at, let's say, what DARPA's come up with in terms of where the internet came from and where GPS came from. 
So there are issues. My main point is, let's step back from that. The question you're asking me is irrelevant. Which would I like? It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, because of the pros and cons. Because the issue really is, will they have the right to do it their way? Let me just finish. Will they have the right to do it that, sure. that way? Or No, there is a question around the right. Because will they do it that way and will we do it our way? And then you have the real conflict, okay? Because the real conflict, when you get down to the nitty gritty of that conflict, is they say, uh, the team I'm gonna put on is going to be a government company partnership type of thing, okay? And we will choose not to have as much of a government partnership. And then we argue about what the rules of the game are, and that's where the hardball starts to come in, right? Yeah, because I, I what are the rules of the game? I don't know if I, I uh, it, it, whatever way you want to run your family, you run your family. It's not my business. No, but, way, what I'm saying to you is China wants to run it with those rules. Go be at it. No, you know, but, but you're but not understanding more, what I'm trying to. It's force versus influence. No, no, no. I'm, I'm trying to make clear. When, you're, when there's a question of an intersection, what are the rules of a game? The United States and China would disagree. Well, that's where the, nubs, the rubs come. In other words, um, if Huawei is a company which um, has a tremendous lead in 5G technology, and what a, an, an American perspective in the rules would be that China pumping money into Huawei is not the way the rules should be, okay? China would say, well, that's for you to say. And then, and so they'll argue but if over this top-down versus bottom-up. I get up. that, but okay. if you're trying to do business with me and my uh, community, you gotta play by my rules, not your yeah, rules, right? Yeah, but it's not so, so clear-cut, that's the point. But, but, but if the whole thing with the CFO and the whole, you know, Iran and Saudi with another company, no, but you're, I'm you get what I'm asking you. Though. No, what but I'm, I'm saying is if you're, you're trying to do business with U.S. and the community, wouldn't it have to be by the rules that U.S. has? Of, of course, okay. each can operate by its rules within its domain. Sure. However, it doesn't work that way, okay? Because of how intertwined they are, okay? Because of how intertwined um, um, a, one technology is for another. If I was to recount uh, what goes into our technologies or their technologies and the world that we've gone through has been intertwined the globalization has meant that companies get this piece from the other and that piece from the other and there are trade routes and now we're having to go through a division of those because it would be easy to say um, when you're in my domain but the world doesn't work like the domain is cut and isolated and you're just within it because the products are, are not just for, within it. If you take an Apple phone, if you take Apple devices, if you take a lot of things that we're using or vice versa, they are intertwined and that is where the rub is. I'm very familiar with that. I'm very familiar with how many iPhones are in China and how much business they allowed US to go in and how much you know, uh, uh, 5G is playing the influence with Huawei and they were getting to the systems even though they weren't selling a lot of phones. I, I understand that part with the race for Huawei how big of a race for 5G is today. The only thing what? I'm asking is principle-wise. Uh, uh, power, force, control, no free press. No one really knows what their unemployment is. They'll say 3.8, but no one really knows. Would you say- It's a competition, 
And with that competition, whatever it is, they will have our bottom up, they'll have their top down, they'll be control and we'll be this and, and so on. And so, that's so how it'll work. And so let's look at that both objectively then and then paper. just also understand what they're doing and what their perspective is. Because if you don't understand their perspective and you just paint it as, you know, a good evil thing, whatever it is, or I don't thing. want it. I don't think it's a good evil thing. That's not what I'm asking. I'm saying if America doesn't take a stand for what made them great and they start compromising their beliefs and principles to make other empires happy, we are getting weaker. We don't become the leaders. That is uh, all uh, I'm but, saying. No, to but you I couldn't my, agree with then we wouldn't have any disagreement if that's all you're saying. Okay. Because so, I couldn't agree with okay. that statement no, 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 more. Sometimes I hear I'm, analysts say, well, you know, you know, it's okay if China's doing this. We have to understand their way of living. We understand their way of living. I just don't know if I want to compromise my, uh, 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 like the other day I asked a question from somebody. I said, would I rather have my government control me or a corporation control me? Meaning they have a spy on me. Would I rather have the U.S. government spy on me or have a corporation spy on me? Well, I'd rather have the corporation spy me. Why? Because their motive is really going to be what? Profit. Okay, but if the government is, maybe they're trying to get data. Would I have control from another country having access over me? I don't know. So th this is all things that I analyze uh, 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 myself to. That's, that's, that, that's fine. All we're really doing, I think, is saying there are two teams that are coming on the field, and there are two different approaches to those, okay? And now let's look at each one. I would say the biggest issue in the United States is how do we be as great as we can be? And that's where my greater worry is, because at the end of the day, what's going to happen is, if we are as strong and capable as we can be, and as great as we can be, we will be good for ourselves, and we will be good for the world, and best in, in the event of any conflict. I agree with that. Okay, and that <laughs> my worry is more about that, okay, than anything else. Perfect. Do you mind if we go into this article? Yeah, sure. Incredibly uh, written. I loved it. I enjoyed it. I uh, highlighted, made some notes, and uh, I brought some boards, if anything you wanted to show, to kind of highlight the points. So when I read this, I wrote three things down here on the side, quotes on what you said in here. One, you said, most capitalists don't know how to divide the economic pie well, and most socialists don't know how to grow it as well, okay? Then you said, meaning, Capitalists kind of maybe are like, hey, let me go compete. I want it all. And socialists are like, well, I don't really know how to grow my $1,000, $10,000 fair. Two, one's income growth results from one's productivity growth, which results from one's personal development. This leads me to one of the points you'll make about education, which I want to cover. And then last one I caught here was, I believe that all good things taken to an extreme become self-destructive and everything must evolve or die. And that these principles now apply to capitalism. Do you believe the basic fundamentals of capitalism is an evergreen philosophy? Um, I'm a professional capitalist. Capitalism has made my life what it is, and, and, I, and I love capitalism. When you use the word evergreen, I'm, as I said there, I think everything needs to look, evolve. Everything needs to look at its problems and say, what are its problems and change? And if it doesn't look at its problems and change, it is in danger of dying. And so when I look at capitalism now, and, and I go into this, I, I hope anybody who's in this interview will take the time to read this so that they don't make a stereotypical view. I highly of, recommend you read the article, highly. Thank you. But um, there are certain outcomes. Um, and those outcomes are things like 
is this a country that I, of the things I grew up with, is this a country of equal opportunity? Can we share the notion? What is our overarching principle? Can we share it, just like you described when you came from Iran? I think this is a country in which it was um, fabulous in being able to bring people without prejudice from anywhere in the world, and they can really be citizens here in a way where, um, based on their opportunity and their good behavior. But in addition, that are the, the thing that I grew up with and I always believed was most important was equal opportunity. So if I would say, what is America? It's a notion, it's a country of equal opportunity. And circumstances have changed. This was not because of evilness of anybody, but circumstances have changed having to do with um, combination of things, having to do with technologies replacing jobs in certain types of jobs, having to do with gl going global and the workforce being a global workforce where others will in those jobs produce it outside the United States and bring it in, having to do with monetary policy, which means that the central banks buy financial assets, which benefits those who have financial assets relative to those. The, having to do the way the Constitution is even written as regarding who yeah. is responsible for education. State or federal. It's a state issue right. by the Constitution. And it is, and, and, and so then you would say, um, I'm, I'm, um, as I examined in this, I just wanted to see the differences. So I, I, I carved it away. I want to look at what the bottom 60% of the population, what their lives are like and separated it from the top 40% because the averages are misleading. And really that's almost like an 80-20 thing. In other words, the bottom 80% relative to the top 20 because that other group is not, is basically similar to the bottom. And, um, and it's not an environment in which we can say that we are striving well for equal opportunity. Okay, opportunity. Because in that top 40%, the average um, uh, per capita um, amount of money spent on a child's education is five times that in the lower 60%. And so if you look at the outcomes, not uh, put the outcomes of income aside for a, a bit, but just even deal with productivity and usefulness. Um, and you look at the tragedy of not being able to get adequate number of books in places or adequate teachers. And, th and then you say, is that productive and is it fair? It it's not productive because you're losing an education of a large percentage of the population, the proper education, the proper care. We also have family issues. Families are breaking apart. In other words, like I said, I had the benefit of two parents who loved mm -hmm. me and took care mm -hmm. of that. In some of these cases that you have a, a problem of that there's not good family guidance and, 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 and that's a whole social issue but it becomes a spiral. And so I think the question is, are we going to look at that well and how do we deal with it in a nonpartisan, non-ideological uh, uh, way, right? Okay, so uh, the whole part, we're talking about kids being raised without married parents. I think 1960, 73% were, today's 38% that don't have both, and the number is obviously higher than it's ever been today. But and I'm not just saying married. Maybe you live unmarried, or maybe there are different kinds of forms of households. But I am saying the guidance in somewhere of a loving 
person at least, right. or two better, for the care of those children is an important determinant. That and basic education, these are important determinants. So, so you, you think, a, a lot of the references you make here goes to 30s and referencing how, you know, the top 1% in the 30s versus today, you know, you show this, that the top 1% in the 30s versus today, you know, top 1% income share has uh, the same amount as the bottom 90%, and the last time it was like that in the 30s. Are you kind of suggesting that we may be facing what happened in the 30s year soon, or no? Yes, I'm saying okay, so that, that is what you're, I'm saying there, there are three, three major divisions, okay? Three major forces. And that force, which I think I emphasize the opportunity gap, not just the wealth gap, but they both matter. If you look at history, across countries, across time frames, and you say when there's a large income and wealth gap and you have an economic downturn, you have a dangerous fight on your hands. You have a dangerous set of circumstances. History has taught us that. You said in April, income inequality is the biggest uh, crisis we have in America in 60 minutes. And I think in uh, recent uh, couple months ago, you said wealth inequality. Those are the two main things that we ought to be concerned and, about. And I'd say and mo even more fundamental, those are the outcomes, and even more fundamental is opportunity inequality and production inequality. Because at the end of the day, just like you said, we have to find how to make this thing work well. And uh, you, uh, you quoted me as saying correctly that I think that the capitalists know how to make it better and the socialists know how to maybe divide it, okay? But what they've got to do is they've got to get in there. There are things that we could do that will make our country more equal opportunity such and as, more productive. Is okay? that the, uh, such as what? Is this well, where you the, went into the education I mean, part? Uh, there's, so many there's so many different things, but certainly basic e equality in education. If you go back to the most How basic. How do you do that, though? Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Let, first, you have to start with the following beliefs. Number one, that we must deal with the issue. Okay? That you treat that risky situation, that economic and political division that exists like this, as a national crisis that we better get on looking at. Isn't okay? that what a lot of different countries try to do where they force no, the I'm, prayer not, theory I, to You're change. not letting me answer your question, because I'm, I'm sorry, my answers are too long. But if you, I have to, okay, you've got to do it, you've got to do it together. Okay, you gotta first of all treat it as an emergency. I'm adjusting emergency. to your interview style. You, 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 your answers are long-winded, and I got. I'm sorry. I'm gonna make notes. No, you go. I'm gonna make notes, and I'll come back and visit it. Please continue. Okay. Um, yeah, I am long-winded. No, it's good. The content is good, but you're getting me to ask a question from uh, certain things you're saying because I'm curious. To I know, know how and, you do and that I feel style. at some that I can't answer it, complete the answer. That's my dilemma when I'm. You know, lead so I don't know. You tell me because you, no, no, it's, you it's your interview, so you way. tell me how to do it. Um, I think we, as a country, have got to come together and realize that we share a common problem of this polarity. And that it should be first declared as a national emergency, okay? And, and that it should be done in a knowledgeable and bipartisan way. I don't think it's going to happen, but I think it's necessary to happen because otherwise you'll have a fight, and this, that fight will itself be very damaging. And that you have to um, then engineer it so that you both increase productivity and you increase a fair system. 
And you could do that, I gave an example. You could do it by education, you could do it by a number of things, I won't. That's where it led into your question. Your question was then, how would you do that in education? That, that was your follow-up mm -hmm. to that. Sure. And I, uh, in my example. And I would say, if you start with the will and the necessity, and you did the engineering with the knowledgeable part partners in various ways, you can get there. The capacity of the individual. So, does that mean, for example, you might carry it forward in the following way. You would say, not just raise taxes, but say, what are our needs that we have to meet? And how much money is it going to take to meet those needs? And you start with not just a redistribute the money. Okay, we have to redistribute the money. But you start with the cri critical necessity, like we need to approach equal education or something approaching equal education. So you put that in and you'd say, how? And how do I build that out? And I could tell you lots of ways. I encounter it all the time in education. My wife and I are very active in terms of dealing with that on a nitty gritty basis. And I could tell you that money put into education in a certain way can have a catalytic, enormous benefit that will change, that will have an economic benefit as a social benefit. Because if you look at, for example, what it takes to take a child through high school education, okay, it doesn't take, uh, there's, there are programs that we're working on. Now, my wife is uh, leading in, in Connecticut. Um, the $100 million, I saw that. Uh, but, but also, on the, comes from a nitty-gritty on, on the ground doing this for 10-year kind of perspective, that to get a child to go, to make it through high school or not, and into a job, doesn't cost that much, okay? Now, you compare that with the cost of not doing that. What that has in terms of the differences in the crime rates, the differences in the incarceration rates. Do you know that to incarcerate a person costs between eighty dollars and $120,000 a year? Okay? We got a $50 billion cost right there per year right now. So you can change, cost effectively, you could give better opportunity, and you can make it more advantageous because you'll create more productive people rather than less productive people. So the discussion of how to engineer that is not taking place. So I'm telling you. You don't think the discussion is taking place? No, no. I'm saying no. I'm saying the you, thing. You, you don't think people would want to be able to help? The no, bottom? I'm saying it's. Uh, you're asking me, is it taking place? You're saying no. It's what not I'm saying place. is not taking place. So hear what I'm saying. Is there declared as a national emergency? No. No, absolutely okay. not. Is are, are people with the real perspectives of both perspectives operating in a nonpartisan or bipartisan way to deal with that problem? No. Okay. Is progress being made to deal with that problem? No. Are they dealing with the cost effectiveness of that dollar to produce a better dollar of outcome? So you asked me examples. I could give you many, many, many examples in which there are cost effective ways to make more people productive and make the system fair. And I'm saying it's not going to happen. And it's, not, it's tragically not going to happen because you have these two sides. So you have the, um, let's say, the socialist not, um, undermining entrepreneurship or, um, uh, or the American dream, okay, in, in many ways in, in terms of changing things. Or you have the capitalist 
who is uh, essentially not recognizing what the dilemma is for that other percentage of the population. That's how it looks to me. Is it fair to say that in order for this to also improve, we have to leave the freedom to fail up to the populace as well, or else we're going to other regimes that are controlling their people. Meaning, let me explain what I mean by this. If I'm trying to make any influence in the country, like for myself, I grew up in a family welfare. My mom and dad, my mom was on welfare. She ran out of money. She went back to Iran. I stayed here. I joined the army. Went for two and a half years. I had a 1.8 GPA in high school. I'm a calculus kid. I did good in calculus. Everything else I wasn't good at. So I go to the army. I get out. A kid calls me, a friend of mine, says, I think you can do better out of the army. I'm about to re-enlist to go special forces, Sears, Rangers. I got all the orders. I'm going to go to DLI, speak five languages. They were going to use me. This is going to be a great guy to keep for 20 years. I'd be a great soldier in the military. He calls me, says, I think you can do good in the free market. So what do you mean? He says, you should get out. So I get out. Then a man, my first boss and my sister, recommend me to pick up a book, and I start reading. Then uh, I get inspired, then I get failed miserably, and then I make a few hundred million dollars in my 30s. That, that happened because someone said, hey, what do you want to do with this? But the same person that offered me a book offered 50 other people to read a book. You understand this. But, this is it, right? That's the American dream. What I'm right? trying to say is, but the point I'm trying to say that for you, your background, you shouldn't be worth $18.7 billion today based on stats. Your dad's last name is not Vanderbilt or Kennedy, or, it's Dalio, and you made Dalio relevant to the world where the world, world knows this. Let me finish my statement, and then I'm also going to be a little bit long-winded here. Please But do. I'm going to turn the wind back over to you, I promise you. I think sometimes when we try to encourage the populace to do something, if we go the route of more entitlement, 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 but the kid is coming home to the wrong mindset, nothing is changing. So how much it is, is this to work on the parents of the eight-year-old PBD or the 12-year-old Ray Dalio? How much of it is on the parents to want to also do something about it and want to pick up a book, want to develop themselves as it is on the kid? Because I think we're forgetting the influence of who the kid is going home to. Oh, I'm so not we, forgetting that. Okay. I'm, so t- I'm talking about parenting, right? Are I mean, you, that's one of my a big... Lot of time on that. Oh, yes. that's one of my big things. Pa- so how do we work the with only, them? How do we influence them? Well, I think, you, I th- I think you've just said... I want to emphasize the things that you said because that's the American dream, okay? The American dream is made up of the fact that you own it. You acquired early on the the good guidance from adults and ideally your parents, and you had an education system that was a fair education system that you can get through, and there you went. And then you had you and your self-discovery process and your character that allowed you to do that. And in the process of doing that, not only did you take care of yourself, you produced such great outcomes and the results that the consequence, you were a real net contributor. And so when we look at, the, we have to make these people net contributors unless somebody's handicapped. If somebody can't, for whatever their inability, and that's a social program, you have to give those other people essentially the opportunity to struggle well, to be able to struggle well and to develop the character and the capabilities that come from struggling well. That's the formula. So we agree on that formula. And so if we have a situation where we're failing because you can go to school districts, and I know the school districts, in which they can't afford each kid to have a, um, a book, enough books, 
or in some places, not enough to have uh, uh, pencils, at each kid having adequate pencils. So they break them in half and sharpen them yeah. from both directions so that they can get by and doing that. And you have that, and we look at it, and we just don't look in the mirror and say, can, what can we give them to have that equal opportunity? We have a problem, because the way it's now laid out to me, it looks like, is that there is a one political party or one um, view that becomes extremely one way that in terms of saying, okay, don't, how do you create that, that desire, that opportunity, that need to be productive and do, don't give just the money give the means by which you're going to operate. And you have another political party who is saying, I will not deal with restructuring it so that we produce the outcomes that are necessary to create that education and create that equal opportunity. So when I look at each one of them, it's a scary choice because I don't think that either of them is creating that process. And unless we come to do it and we'd stop talking like um, corporations are bad, or um, or billionaires are bad. You know, most That's the language today. Most, most, most billionaires became, I'm an accidental billionaire, and most people became billionaires because what they did is they produced something of value that people wanted, whether it's millionaires, forget million, or just earning a good job. You're producing something that someone wants, and in producing something that someone wants, they pay you for it. And the more you produce that somebody wants, the more they pay you. And that's the way the system is. And that entrepreneurship and all of that is a very important thing. That's why equal opportunity. People from all over the world came to the United States for that. Okay, so now if we can agree on that, and how do we do that, deal with it in a, in a way where together we're working on that rather than just one again, trying to kill the other, and then undermining that we won't fix ourselves and we need to fix ourselves because if you're looking at the world and you're saying okay now you're competing with the world and you're competing with china one way or another we got to make our system work well then the follow-up question for you would be in this area is, uh, i read a book uh, a few years ago by lawrence uh, miller titled the uh, barbarians to bureaucrats never sold a lot of copies great book i called him one time i said lawrence how do more people not know about your books i'm not a good marketer i just wrote the book and he says how there's a profit first the visionary first, and then there's uh, the barbarians. I'll go out there and make it happen. Sometimes a prophet is also the barbarian, like maybe a Steve Jobs. So prophet, barbarian, builder, explorer, administrator, bureaucrat, aristocrat. Okay, so America's kind of getting at this face of bureaucrat, aristocrat. You that's know, right. That's what we are, right? That's right. But then he says that during these times is when you can give birth to a synergist, right? That brings it together. Where does the synergist come? to bring the left and the right uh, together, uh, because you know the media is not playing the synergist, the media is kind of dividing a little that's bit. That's right. So okay. who, who becomes a synergist? No, but I think, I think he's created what is a beautiful description, and I will ask, having read history and watched uh, dynasties rise and decline and empires rise and decline, I have never seen the synergist. You've never seen the synergist? I've never seen the synergist. So I want an example of the synergist. What I have seen happen over and over again is this decline. He's, decli he's describing that notion, also m one generation to another, that what happens is it's the person who doesn't have anything, works hard, accomplishes something, wow. has it, and so on. The synergist, I've never seen the synergist. All I've seen in history is these people deteriorating, that leadership deteriorating, 
and those people fighting. That's what I've seen repeatedly in history. That's what I'm saying it happened in the 1930s, but it happened, I've studied this going back. Uh, literally, I had to study, I wanted to study the last 500 years to understand the rises and declining of empires. And if I go to, I, I've studied before this, the British Empire, before that, the Dutch Empire. I studied the Spanish Empire. I studied the dynasties in China, and they all have the same paths. They all basically have the same paths. And those paths um, are... It's not an optimistic... It's uh, the same uh, thing as even companies. It's a company path or think of, of a multi-generational family. You know, the first generation makes it they work hard. The second generation, and that's why they go from the saying, from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, okay? If you think about the company, yep. the corporation, wow. corporation starts with an entrepreneur, and then it goes to the cycle he's describing, and then you get to the bureaucrat, okay? And then somebody who's the entrepreneur and scrappy, like you or, wh or wh whatever those people, come up and they're the revolutionaries, yeah. and they tear it down because they come up with better ways of doing it. And those are what the patterns look like. You said in an interview you're not competitive or you're driven. I'm sorry? You said in an interview you're I'm not, not competitive. competitive or you're very driven. You used the I word I'm driven. I'm passionate. Okay. Okay, so, I'm curious and I'm passionate. How involved are you in encouraging this conversation and dialogue to take place if you think income inequality and wealth inequality and opportunity inequality, if you think those three are a national crisis, how come you, national emergency, how come you're not leading that charge to bring and unify the groups together? Because you have credibility and you have no, a resume no, no. for my, people my, to say- my ability, my, uh, look. Power com comes with the extent of the role. I'm at a state, so I'll step back and I'll describe sure. where my, what my you perspective is. You know what I'm asking, is. though. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Um, I, and I'm trying to answer it. And like any of my answers, you'll have to bear with me because they take a couple of minutes. Um, okay. The, fir the first is um, where I am in my life. I think there are three phases in one's life. First phase is you're dependent on others and you're learning. Then you go out in the world and... Um, you're increasingly, others become dependent on you and you're working and you're trying to be successful. Then you approach the third phase where um, I'm in a phase where I'm going to my third phase. And in that thir third phase, my goal is to have other people be successful without me. And that's like extends to your kids, extends to other things. So the reason I'm passing along these things is because I, I, I hope that they're helpful. The reason we're doing this interview, I'm not doing it for money, okay? I'm not doing it for any other reason that I hope it's helpful. And so I'm passing that along. It's so much dependent on other people to make their choices. One crusader is gonna come in there. I'm not uh, running for president. I'm not running, uh, I'm not gonna be in that position of control. That is not where I am. I'm just hoping that I could pass along my thoughts for people to take it or leave it and leave it up to them, right? So, uh, so do I want to build what? Do I want to run for government, government or anything? You're, we're in a situation, if you don't have your hands on the levers of power, it doesn't matter, okay? So, because I agree. You, because you can only have to convince the people who have their hands on the lever of power. So the only thing I could do is give my best thoughts for people to take or leave it, and that's where I am. So do you think there's any room today for a media company to come out that is Walter Cronkite-esque, you know, uh, a platform 
That's not Fox, that's not CNN, MSNBC, Time, whoever it is, Washington Post. That's in the middle, where somebody can go to and say, you know what, He's, I don't know if I, I'm a Democrat, but I don't know if I agree, but makes sense, I'm a Republican, ah, that's kind of make, do you think we need something there where people to go to to say, these guys are pretty independently thinking and they're stating the facts? A- 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 absolutely. Do I think it will happen? Probably not. Why do you say that? History has shown me, and also uh, I study psychology and neuroscience as to how the brain works and how habit and uh, community decision making in uh, uh, in a psychological neural neurological way is very much that you start with your conclusion and you and one filters consistent with the conclusion and there's affinity groups and so on and so I think that just the notion of that population deviating from that and also the mechanics of sensationalism in terms of what sells yes that it produces a dynamic in which the media itself is not going for what that process and, and the economics itself of the media is such that it doesn't sell it doesn't support itself i don't think there's a large enough market and I think it's being exemplified by the power of e- extremism or illogical emotional behavior. So it almost needs to be somebody that wants to contribute rather than wanting to profit from but it. But I don't even know how, the, how big the market is. What? Would you buy it? Would you subscribe to it? Wouldn't well, of course. Uh, I had my, one of my sons came up with um, a, a, a media platform, but what he would do uh, was it, would, it was an online, so I'll pass the idea along. I thought it was a terrific idea. Uh, just a social site that on oh he called it the issue that was the name of the company and it's an on-site and on that issue whenever there was a controversial point of view all he would do was find the smartest people who held different points of view on that and he would put together um, two or three of those which had then the opposite point of view on that and you would look at that, that and so you could say I'm interested in the issue and seeing both, and by the way, anybody can do this. So I'll pass of it on course, to the world. Yeah, it's, it's, you could just. I hope somebody gets. Inspired I hope somebody to do this. gets yes. inspired to do that. So you could then say, I can get informed on both sides of the perspective of that issue. I was supporting uh, a major correspondent type of person to bring on uh, two um, to to have uh, the name of the show was going to be in pursuit of truth. And they would find um, opposing points of view on any issue and have the de- thoughtful debate about those issues. Um, the first one, we, we did actually a pilot for it, and it was called, uh, I picked the most controversial point of view, God, reality, or delusion. Now we picked that. You could take so, this thing or that, whatever the rule, the, pick the most controversial things and have a civil conversation about those types of things in terms of seeing both sides of the issue. It's a real big thing for me. I think Dennis Prager did a little bit of that with uh, Thomas Sowell. When I was in LA, we'd go to uh, Wayne Hughes' house and he would bring all these guys from both sides like Obama's campaign manager versus Bush's campaign manager and they'd go at it and it was beautiful. It's like you're sitting in a Ah. classroom taking notes. 
Beautiful. I got one question and then speak And then right you realize up. issues are more complicated than they can be made. Exactly. Right? And then you see similarities. I know. I, similarities. We're like, wow, these guys have more in common than you thought. And they walk away liking each other. Yeah. I'm, and, and these are smaller settings. Yeah, like, like and let's, let's book our agreements. Let's get the agreement yes, stuff out. So could we agree that education, better education is an important thing? Could we agree on those problems and then work together for that? Man, I'm, that's that where we need to go. Yes. Last question and then I'll do speed run and then we're done. Process of replacing yourself as a CEO. I know you've spoken about it, but now it's a little bit deeper because it's different than you wrote in the book, than even articles you've written in the last two years. I'm curious where you are right now. If you had to go over again to replace yourself and bring another CEO, and you're the founder, so emotionally you're attached, it's your culture, your principles, how do you process and what are you thinking about to get somebody to bring in and what are you looking for? Is it internal, external? Are you comfortable external being a CEO? How do you process replacement well, of CEO Well, let me, let me again start with the big particular picture. Um, it is stupid to be attached to um, the ways that should be done or attached to one doing the job of being a CEO, that is a stupid thing because there's a certain life arc and we evolve. And as I say, to go to the third phase and that let them go to the second. And that's why being, have, helping others be successful without you is the higher objective. So first you have to start and you say that because it's like your children. Let's say you have adult children, you know, your parents, the best thing that could happen is they smile and they look at you and they see how you've Very evolved true. along those ways. So you have to want that. that. That becomes your arc. The second thing is that you have to realize that, uh, like anything, if you haven't done something of a principle, if you haven't done something three times before um, successfully, don't assume you know how to do it. So all along those lines, as you start off, you have to allow enough time for mistakes and learning that's going to come along the way in order to be able to make that transition successfully. And I've, I learned that um, over there. You know, it, it was a process. First time around, it didn't work. Second time around. But we all learn because all these experiences are learning. That's the purpose of them all. So it's okay to fail a few of these times and then to get there as long as you eventually get there. And then you have to, uh, you know, help them. So, you know, enable them. Enablement is the word, not control. Enable. Be a How mentor. Hard is that for personality like you to do. Oh, it's so great. It's all partnership. If the the first thing I first sentences in this book that I wrote. First of all, understand that I'm a dumb shit. And anything that I have... I haven't done shit. You're saying like you have to... No, I'm a dumb shit. Oh, you're a dumb shit. In other words, that what I mean is that any success I've had in my life has been more due to my knowing how to deal with what I don't know than than due to anything I know. Okay? Once you start to realize that and the power does not just bottled up in your own head okay and you can draw upon the best then you can then you change your approach to life and I'd say it's the opposite the greatest tragedy of mankind or the greatest tragedy of individuals who together make up mankind in their uh, dealing with each other is they have bottled up in their heads wrong opinions that they don't know how to stress test because they think if it's in their heads it's it's right if they have an opinion and it's so easy to get around that if you can think about how do I go beyond that with tr- 
so the reason I'm saying that is I love partnerships in which there's a back and forth and you knock things course, around yep. and you get to the right answer where there's open-mindedness and learning at to the same time as there's the assertiveness as you're trying to figure things out together. Very cool. Last uh, thing is speed round. I give a name, you just give me a word that comes to your mind. Okay. I'll give a name, you give me one word. Buffett. A wise. Lawrence Culp, when he was a CEO of Danaher. Metrics. Interesting. Boris Johnson. Loose cannon. Okay. 1994, Newt Gingrich. Accomplishment. Joe Biden. Who knows? Milton Friedman. Naive. Naive? Wow. Michael Bloomberg. Well-balanced and capable. Jeff Bezos. Interesting. Peter Thiel. Don't know enough. Okay. Very cool. So I appreciate you going through that. That was fascinating. Uh, value tainers, before I wrap this up, a couple things. Number one, highly, highly recommend the first thing you do, go download his app, Principles. After you download the app, you want to get the book, Principles. I've read this multiple times. I had every single one of my executives read it and write a paper on it. I had every single one of my sales leaders read it and write a paper on it because it's that effective of a book. If you haven't read it, you got to read it. Having said that, Ray, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to doing this again in the future. I look forward to it thank too. You. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David, And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care everybody. Bye-bye.